previously on Hacker Valley Blue. We're doing the very first season of Hacker Valley Blue. This season specifically, we're going to be highlighting threat intelligence. I literally was just inputting IOCs into a spreadsheet. (laughs) And it was tedious, but I I knew those domains and IP addresses so well by the end of it. And so it, it was before the days of us having these great threat intel platforms. And that's why you need that human element, because if you set that's where machine learning um, has an error, right? Because it is programmed by humans and it, it is built in with that bias. So it needs to know, hey, these are the things that might be also happening. And it's human that's going to be able to pick up on those little nuances. At least I think so. This is the Hacker Valley Studio podcast, exploring the human element behind cybersecurity programs and technology. This episode is sponsored by Risk IQ. Risk IQ has been crawling the internet for over 10 years, collecting intelligence on a massive scale, and have created a comprehensive graph of the internet. Risk IQ has deployed sensors globally to continuously monitor, extract, and analyze intelligence. Risk IQ will help you map, monitor, and shrink your attack surface while proactively detecting threats in the wild. If you want to find out more information, check them out at riskiq.com or go to our show notes to learn more. Let's jump right into this Hacker Valley Blue episode. In this episode, we have Brandon Dixon. He co-founded Passive Total. He's also the VP of Strategy at Risk IQ, and Brandon has a lot of accomplishments that he's acquired over his career. And in fact, he's helped build Risk IQ to over 200 employees, and he's an absolute threat intel expert. We jump into Brandon's background and learn more about what it takes to be a great leader, great practitioner, and someone who is tuned in to the business of threat intelligence. What's going on, everybody? You are in the Hacker Valley studio with your hosts, Ron and Chris. Yes, sir. Welcome back to the show. Glad to be back again, repping Hacker Valley Blue. And in this episode, it's going to be a bit different because we've brought in a heavyweight guest. We have Brandon Dixon. He is the VP of Strategy at Risk IQ. Also, you co-founded Passive Total, which was ultimately purchased by Risk IQ. Brandon, I know that you're a man of many talents and many interests. I can't wait to jump into all that during this episode. But most importantly, welcome to the show. Thanks, guys. I really appreciate it. Brandon, you are pretty much the quintessential Hacker Valley guest. You're into fitness and philosophy. You're deep into tech. You're deep into leadership. There's so many things that we can unpack here. But for the folks that don't know who you are just yet, give us a little bit of your background and what you're doing today. Sure. I started uh, my career, you know, really during the, the high school days of, you know, doing working with the internet and networking, you know, kind of bounced around doing different odds and ends to try and gain experience in the industry. That was one of those difficulties in trying to find a job. You know, they always wanted a whole bunch of experience, but in order to get the experience, you need to get a job. I did a lot of odds and ends in the, the tech community Eventually made my way uh, over to a defense contractor world, spent some time there, popped over to academia for a little bit, did some research, helped run that security team, 
went into the, the more private sector, doing espionage research, and then uh, ultimately decided to, to found a company when, when I identified a need. And, you know, fortunately for myself and my co-founder, we found a great home in Risk IQ. So we were able to sell our business over to Risk IQ, continue the journey and uh, seeing our vision. And so that involved uh, integrating the business, which was a lot of fun to do from a development perspective, running product for several years, ultimately reaching a scale where I can now run strategy for the company, which involves more partnerships and, and looking at the larger vision for the, the business as a whole. That's outstanding. One thing that I really wanted to just jump right into in this conversation is really the business of threat intelligence, because I mean, I, like me, my background has been threat intelligence. I've, I was doing threat intelligence for about 12 years but before I became a director of security engineering. And I've seen a lot of changes because in the beginning, no one knew about threat intelligence. And then all of a sudden, everybody wanted threat intelligence and then everybody was doing threat intelligence. But there's been a lot of changes and different seasons for threat intelligence as a business, as a community. How have you seen things kind of play out during your career? Yeah, I mean, it's I like how you characterize it as seasons because it's that's sort of like how how I look at it. I almost call it like the flavor of the week sometimes in this industry and what gains traction. For me, threat intelligence early on, before it was really that, was about just looking at the technical indicators that made up an attack or a particular piece of malware or something that we could attribute back to an individual or set of individuals that were doing something malicious. You know, I got very early involved in the espionage research community. I want to say back in 2012, uh, maybe even as early as 2010. That started to solidify what threat intelligence meant because it wasn't an amorphous threat actor deploying an exploit kit, you know, for crimeware purposes. It was, you know, a, a potentially a nation state that was actually backed and, and interested in stealing technologies or, or going in and attacking specific targets with a very specific purpose. And so when I got involved into that world, threat intelligence really started to make a bit more sense. If you look at government actors, you start to think about militaries and you know who might be actually be on the other end of the keyboard doing these attacks. And when you take that military doctrine, like that's where I think the threat intel kind of world started to develop to some extent. You have former military personnel who were either active or you know just going out into the private sector or working in the defense industrial base and realizing that like these attacks were happening and there was ways for them to combat it. When I looked at the evolution of that, it, it was interesting because it was originally just indicators of compromise, mainly around network-based indicators. And, you know, that's evolved quite considerably over time. That was what Threat Intel was at one point in time, was just a, a bunch of lists to the consumer. I think to everyone else in the industry, they viewed Threat Intelligence as the finished intelligence. You know, what are the actors doing? What are their intents? What are their, you know, primary intelligence requirements, et cetera? I think where we're at today is that the industry is still a little loose on what threat intelligence means. I think it's coming together more. There's certainly some leaders in the industry, including Risk IQ, that I think are, are helping define what threat intel is. But by and large, I still think it's a bit amorphous to, to the consumer. Uh, so it still has a long way of go in, in terms of getting gaining some maturity and a, a shared definition that everyone can agree upon. 
With that being said, and still having room to mature for threat intelligence, you know, I look at experts like Chris and yourself, and you founded Passive Total back in 2014, and you've been sprinting ever since and experiencing the threat intel flavors of the week or the seasons. What really drives you to keep on tackling these problems and these challenges as the landscape is changing and we're constantly redefining what threat intelligence is. I think that's it. Like in a way you, you, you said it like the change itself makes it exciting. It's funny. I was speaking with my brother last night. He's a incident responder for a local consulting group in the Virginia area. And it's, it's interesting to me because I get to hear the stories from him about, you know, what's, what's going on in the industry, what ransomware is hitting and what's not. And it's by and large, it's the same problem, but the actors get slightly more advanced or they get more clever in their approach. And the defenders, you know, us trying to, to stop them, you know, while it, it's always difficult, technology is increasing in, in a way that, that we can really get ahead of the problem more. We can start to gain visibility into areas where we previously had none. Uh, data is ubiquitous and, and you're able to, to really understand what's happening or maybe what happened if you're being in a reactive position. So what keeps it interesting for me is the fact that it is changing. And my hope is that security starts to bake into a lot of the technologies we see today so that businesses that are starting today may not necessarily face the same problems that businesses face today from a security perspective. So we had Jack Resider on earlier this season, and we talked a great deal about bias because he puts out a, a fantastic product, and I know he's struggling with bias to a great deal, and that's on the production side. But there's also bias on both the intelligence collection side and the analysis side. would love to hear some of your thoughts and philosophies on bias and intelligence collection and analysis. Yeah, bias, man. That's a... That's one that most people don't, they don't take a lot of time to think about when it comes to, to collection. I think a lot of people access a source of information and they often forget like key analytical questions they should be asking. Like what is the coverage of this particular data set? Where was it sourced from? Who are the backers behind this? How was the collection enabled? Even as something as simple as understanding just timestamps. If you don't form like standardize on, let's say, UTC or, or, or something just across the board for all your collection boxes, then you're you're skewing the data there and you're presenting a picture to the analyst that, that could just be wrong. It could allow them to, to draw false conclusions. What I find in our industry is that not enough analysts, I mean, including myself at times, like it's easy to get lazy and you see like a connection made. And, and you, you get excited and you're like, oh, man, I, I found the, the next thing or I, I really identified this linkage between actor one and actor two. But when you start to actually sit down and look at the data and you really ask the questions, like you start to realize how much bias is, is everywhere, whether it's where you're collecting from or how often you're collecting, the frequency, how you're merging the data, how it's being cleaned. Bias plays a big part in collection efforts and it really plays an even larger part in, in how analysts form their assessments. It needs to be factored in 100%. I'm sure once you uncover things like bias, when you're collecting information or even putting out a product of threat intelligence or anything cybersecurity related, it's a surprise. It's like, wow, where did this come from? I always like to ask our guests, you know, 
as you progress through the journey of building a product and helping organizations, what are some things that have come to you as a surprise just through your journey of being an expert in threat intelligence? I'd say the biggest surprise or the lesson that you have to continually teach yourself is to forget everything you know. It's not like you completely forget everything, but you have to remind yourself that your experience that you've built up over time that allows you to consider yourself an expert or, you know, just a really, you know, strong practitioner in your field that not everyone else has gotten to that point. And so managing expectations, especially when building products or building services, it's really important to to think about or try to put yourself in, in someone else's shoes and empathize with the experience that they might have or, or the, the lack of experience that they may have. So that I think that plays a big role. That's probably the biggest shock to me is uh, we, we still continue to do things like threat hunting workshops. And what those are aimed at doing is educating folks in the industry for free, you know, about data sets that are available on the open internet. Obviously, Risk IQ collects a ton of data, so we have a position in that. But there's a number of other solutions out there, aggregators, that are also collecting data as well. And so what we like to do is, is train analysts or future analysts on you know, what type of analytical questions they should be asking, how to form a hypothesis, what biases should they look for in the data, how should they prove out their hypothesis, et cetera. And it's always surprising to me that something I take for granted, such as, you know, passive DNS and understanding how that data set works, when you speak to other analysts, that's not always well understood to them. And so even though threat intelligence has been around for many years inside of our industry and it has changed, a lot of it has remained the same. And it's it's always surprising to me how how much industry knowledge it takes to really become proficient as an analyst a really good analyst. And I always find that as, as a surprise. So speaking of passive DNS, I'd love to hear a little bit about the journey of passive total, like the beginnings, the the finding the market fit, the ups, the downs, and then ultimately the, the relationship with Risk IQ today. Could you give us a little bit of insight into uh, what that journey looked like? Yeah, I built tools for many years. When I was working in the defense contractor space, I got my kind of taste of Python and and how I could automate certain things within the areas that we were operating. When I went over to uh, the another defense contractor, I started, you know, building tools around dissecting PDFs. And when I got to the university, uh, George Washington University, you know, I built out a full web platform that could allow people to collaborate on investigations around malicious PDF. So I got a taste of like building products very early on and I never quite understood that's what I was doing. So to me, I was always just building tools and I, I really enjoyed it because it allowed me to progress as an analyst and it allowed other analysts who maybe didn't have as much experience or they, they just didn't have the development chops to use a tool like mine to help them do their job. So the, when you know, when I was at iDefense, I was working with what would be my co-founder, Steve Ginty. And, you know, we just found ourselves always servicing different requests. So we had customers that would ask us about particular threat actors or threat infrastructure. And at the time, all of the data sets that, that we were leveraging, including a lot of passive DNS information, 
were really just disseminated all over the place. There wasn't a central repository. Every single one of the, the formats were different. So some of it was XML, some of it was JSON. Even if it was all JSON, it would be different key structures or ways of presenting the information. And what we find ourselves doing is performing an investigation on a network indicator, going to all these different sources, trying to federate, getting a response back, cleaning up the data, normalizing it, adding the enrichment that we needed, and then identifying the analytical pieces that we wanted to pivot upon and repeating that process over and over again. And most of our analysis was largely being done inside of a notepad file, which I know a lot of analysts still use today. I thought that there needed to be a better way. So I ultimately uh, ended up leaving for my defense and I had some time on my hands in between jobs. And I thought, well, now's as good as time as any to consider writing some code around this. So I, I wrote some code, which would eventually become uh, the original name is a fun fact for passive total was actually passive aggressive. That was oh, <laughs> no way. That was the original name. Probably still have screenshots somewhere. Like PA was the, uh, the short version of it. We just hosted it and it wasn't even meant to be a commercial product. It was just like, let's just put this tool out there where it aggregates all these different passive DNS providers and it puts it in a web interface. So it saves you time. It normalizes the data. It enriches it. And then most importantly, it allows you to preserve the institutional knowledge that you gain within the system. So that six months later, when you're reinvestigating some infrastructure or actor or linkage, and you come across some old stuff that you've seen before, those labels are, are right in front of you and you, you know the context. I got scared. I ended up going and joining another job because I was like, I, I didn't want to pursue that as a full-time thing. I just thought it was, it was a silly idea on the side. You know, worked at that job for a couple of months, ultimately quit, had some time on my hands again. And, you know, a lot more people were now using the system. I think we had a couple hundred people at the time, had a lot of friends coming to me and they're like, you should really charge for this. Like, we'd give you money for it. Like, we'd love to see some enterprise features. So then I talked with Steve and I said, hey, man, maybe we should actually do this. And I'd love to work with you on it. And, you know, you got an economics background. You're a great analyst. I'm a developer and, you know, I can help on the marketing side. So, we ended up building the enterprise services, launched them in June, had our first client signed in June. Um, and that's largely when uh, we started uh, talking with Risk IQ in, in July, basically. Uh, it was very shortly thereafter. It was a very quick journey. There was uh, less ups and downs than you would anticipate. I continued to work at Facebook at the time. So I was doing uh, passive total on the nights and weekends, so kind of your traditional Silicon Valley story, I guess, lived <laughs> yeah. in San Francisco. And when the proposition came up that, that Risk IQ would be interested in purchasing or acquiring the business, I was like, well, this is a no-brainer. Like, you know, as somebody who doesn't like as much risk, I'm looking at it as, wow, Risk IQ has a ton of data. They don't have any analyst workbench whatsoever. And our biggest competitors at the time were like sole source data sets. So people who had just focused on one area where Risk IQ had really branched out and focused on a ton. So I saw it as like, well, it's a little early, but these guys are like completely aligned with our vision. They're going to give us the autonomy and freedom to operate. We're going to get some cash out of the acquisition and, you know, like some stake in the business to, to complete the story. And, you know, ultimately we, we ended up doing it. So the, I'd say the highest 
the highs were were after it, uh, after that was done, and the lows were that diligence process, which um, is very opaque and unknown to a lot of people. Most of them won't experience it. But any exit of a business, regardless of its size, no matter how early you are in that process, is filled with a lot of stress and unknown. And that, by and large, was uh, was not fun. Uh, very glad we did it. It paid off in the in the long run. And I think we're we're doing well now. But that that would have been the lowest point, oddly uh, or ironically enough, is just going back and forth to work out a deal. Right. And when we spoke last time, you were talking about how you love the business side. You love building business. You love kind of taking these ideas around product and looking to see how they fit in business. And I'm sure when you were kind of learning about business and business strategy, that this actually helped you along with your developing skills with building the application that ultimately led to selling the idea, the concept and the, the technology for uh, Passive Total. Yeah, I mean, I, I think I was well, a lot of people romanticize what it means to to have a startup or to do their own thing. And uh it's really hard. I think uh even when you know, even when there's like failure, I think people look at those situations or they shouldn't look at those situations as failure. I don't know maybe how to characterize it like at this point in time, but even it when a startup doesn't succeed or they don't see the exit they want, or maybe there's no exit at all. There's a ton of, of lessons learned in that process. For me, we definitely, like I, I was lucky in the sense that I was able to manage my time efficiently, you know, work at Facebook up until the day that I signed the letter to sell Passive Total to Risk IQ. I never didn't have a job, right? Like I was like extremely fortunate to, to have the opportunities I did to make that, that lifestyle happen. I can look back at what we were doing with Passive Total at the time and, and and now especially, you know, five plus years in. I was so ignorant and so naive and the exact amount of like qualities that you want in someone because when you start to understand risk and you and you really start to understand like building out a business, it becomes more real of where the failure can occur. But when you don't actually know those details and you're kind of doing it for the first time. The ignorance kind of helps a little bit and being naive helps because it you don't discourage yourself. You just keep going and you find a way to like push through any issues or, you know, oh man, we didn't get the sale or, oh, we're not materializing any money fast enough or, oh, we might have to go consider raising money if we really want to do this thing. So I think in a way, a lot of lessons learned on the business side, but really not until after we sold. And if anything, I think Steve, my co-founder, who ultimately did quit his job for several months to to help support the sales side because that's not something you can easily do working another job. I actually think he probably gained more of the direct lessons there. So for me to, you know, um, we definitely learned a lot along the way. And, and now I have a greater appreciation for building businesses. I, I kind of have a formula. So I still enjoy doing it. I think at the time with when we sold Passive Total, I was just... Uh, I had enough stamina, determined, uh, like and I was determined enough to get it done that that we were able just to, to be fortunate enough to get it through. I'll just plug this book as well. There's a good Malcolm Gladwell book. I was talking to a founder yesterday about his company, and we both enjoyed this book. But the the book's called Outliers. Yep, I'm sure you guys know this. Like, uh, success is a product of circumstance, and you know it's 
a lot of things line up in order to make that happen. So I, there's not, there's not a single time and there's never been a time where I've looked at passive total and said, man, we're better. Like, that's why we got it done. It was like, no, like there's so many things that took place that allowed us to, to have that success. That's super important. And I think that's something that people need to to keep in mind as they go through their own successes, whether it's personal or professional, that there's a little bit of circumstance that kind of comes along with all that stuff. One thing that I wanted to to bring up, and it's a philosophy of mine, is that I, in my opinion, I think intelligence leads security. And, and always, like w- whether you're talking at the enterprise risk management level or you're looking at threat hunting or you're looking at vulnerability management, I really do believe that intelligence leads operations. In fact, the very first Slack that I ever built and the community that I built on my own was intelligence-led cyber professionals. That was the, the name of the Slack. I'd love to hear what your thoughts are on the maturation of using threat intelligence within a company and what it's going to look like in the future. Yeah, I mean, in the early days, you know, everyone was just sort of clinging for a way to detect bad. And where I think we've matured is that now there's a better sense that there is someone on the other end of the keyboard, either because they've, it could be a physical person literally on the keyboard, uh, or it could be some sort of automation that's taken place that, that someone's written. But I think from a, uh, the process maturing on the consumer side, I think most businesses by and large now understand that from an intelligence perspective, they need to think about what an actor might target. So, you know, it's, it's not that just anyone is going to target them. There is broad opportunistic targeting that takes place. But I think from a maturity perspective where people used to just say, give me anything to detect bad. I think we're reaching more of a state where companies are saying, you know, we have a lot of clients or, you know, we, we service a lot of people or we have a lot of intellectual property. And so we are a potential target of this particular ransomware variant, or we're a target of particular nation states by virtue of the industries that we operate in or the locations, the geography in which we're part of. So I think that more businesses are starting to use, starting to take a look at their business profile and use that to help drive their intelligence process. So that means, you know, defending their crown jewels, if you will, and putting more around that and protecting where their data lives and all the way to looking at particular actors and the TTPs associated with them and trying to build uh, more ways to defend against maybe just those particular actors first before thinking more holistically about, you know, anything that, that might come inbound to the business. So I, I've definitely seen it mature. Uh, I still think it has a long way to go. It's expensive to employ people that are going to, to go and analyze the business that way. And, and businesses are constantly evolving. They're not static. That presents a challenge as well. I think the future of threat intelligence really is getting baked into everything. Today, it's sort of seen as this independent sector of our industry or, or, you know, there's different vendors who service it. But I think the value of threat intelligence is how do you get that, that useful information into as many systems as possible? You know, if it's a security uh, orchestration automation platform, great. Well, you can start to automate actions and build recipes. If it's a SIM, awesome. Let's do it there. If it's an asset inventory 
and you, you're just trying to figure out what you own. Like intelligence has a place, I think, in every part of a business. And the more that we can disseminate that information without necessarily having a human involved in the, in the loop, I, I think we'll, we'll see better outcomes. So I have a funny question for you and, and play along. We've been asking some people this question. You are working and building a new product or helping an organization with security. How do you make an unhackable or seemingly unhackable system? Oh, man. So I won't go on the record and say like, that's not like, I don't, I don't believe we could it's, say it's not possible to be unhackable. We, we know that. Right. But if there were such a thing, what would that look like to you? I think it's building resiliency into the systems and, and probably more important, the business process that rely on the systems. And so when, when you mention something like resiliency, what I mean by that is just is there a way that the infrastructure involved with supporting that business process can largely be ephemeral? In other words, like, could it just go away? And then could it come back alive? You know, and, and depending on the, how scalable it needs to be, you know, I, I think certain technologies enable that to take place today, but it presents a moving target for the actors. If they successfully compromise part of the system that the business process relies on, and it's ephemeral in nature in that, you know, it's just a means to an end. You know, maybe the system's up for 10 minutes and it doesn't really maintain state on that machine. Then that means that the actor has 10 minutes to laterally move to something else. And the thing that they laterally move to, if also ephemeral, it will disappear. And even if there is enough time for them to kind of start to map out the network, because of its ephemeral nature, with one scan, by the time their their scan or fingerprinting is done, you know it, the the network has already started to to change on them. That to me is the closest thing that you can get. Coupled with you know, and this isn't a plug for for Amazon, but you know, as a developer, I've used their services. And to me, if you look at the attack surface or limited attack surface created in using their entire stack, it's so minimal. And I'm not talking about EC2. You know, you can use API gateway to then call a Lambda function that, you know, fires up a little container that runs a process, you know, that, that pulls, that dumps data into S3, that maybe pulls a little bit of state information from Dynamo. And all of those things are creating cloud logs that you can put a, a watchdog on top of. There's nothing to really compromise in that process apart from the AWS account itself. And if you actually go and lock down the AWS account, each one of those individual parts or components of the system can literally be locked down to just executing their given function. So to me, that's probably the closest I think we could get to designing systems is that everything's sort of ephemeral in nature. And we're already seeing this with containers. Right. Um, and that, I think that's one of the cool things about containers. Though um, the, the challenge that comes with all of this is how do you log it? Like, and, mm. and how do you gain insight and visibility? And I think that's one of the, the challenges. Like I'm seeing a lot of promise and hope in these new technologies that do allow for ephemeral systems and business processes to be built on these things that are not unhackable, but they don't really have an attack surface. But then I think about how do you, what happens when there is an issue? How do you respond to that? 
how do you get the information necessary to actually do incident response? Right. It's completely and, different. And I think it kind of goes back to what Chris was saying earlier. Like at some point it always leads back to intelligence. Like there's going to have to be some logs that you're observing somewhere. There's always going to be that point of compromise. And in that example, it sounds like it's the account. And unless you're looking at who's logging into that account, then you're not going to have the insight to really know when you got compromised, if you have all these ephemeral applications and devices in your infrastructure. Yeah. I mean, like that's, fortunately, I think there is methods to create logs, but I, I, I do believe that it, it it's going to, it's going to build like a, we're going to need a, a new set of security experience to handle that. It's going to require people who understand these cloud-based systems and you know the nuanced ways in which they interoperate with each other and how data flows through them. Because if you think about something like a an AWS or an Azure, when you're you're putting these workloads in those systems and you're building applications or you have those details, like they're when they're ephemeral in nature, it's hard to understand how the data flows between each one of those individual bits. Like it's the the level of abstraction is so far away especially if you're doing like geo data centers, like you're abstracting that away too. You know, where does the information actually live now? Like, where do my packets flow when I go to request this data? Or worse, when someone's inside of my account and they're exfilling it out to some third-party storage. So I think the threat intelligence part, this, this just goes back into, you know, the fact that it sort of needs to exist everywhere. And I don't know what the answer to that is. It's certainly, if you're only applying it to logs, then you're effectively reacting to the situation. So the question becomes, you know, like, is there a little security instrumentation that you can do within a Lambda function so that you're, you're dictating all the properties of what it can and can't do, you know, and locking that down? It's an interesting uh, area to, to explore. And I think it's, I wouldn't, I wouldn't call it quite bleeding edge, but it, it, it is very much there that, I think there's a lot of people solving those problems right now or attempting to solve those problems for any business that's going through the digital transformation process. Earlier, we spoke a little bit about circumstance, but I think someone could look at your career and definitely say that all of your success wasn't by mistake. I mean, you're reading books like Outliers and you're doing endurance sports, which tells me that you don't seek comfort. You, you seek discomfort in order to make yourself better. And I mean, you, that's evident in starting a company and other things. Love to hear a little bit about your philosophy on life and success. And, and what would you like to share with people that are out there listening right now? Yeah, I mean, it's always important to, to recognize like the circumstances that did allow you to get to where you are. And more often than not, it's not only a, um, it's a byproduct of, of who you are, but it's also a lot of people involved as well on that journey, right? So, you know, I grew up in uh, in Baltimore in not the greatest area. It wasn't horrible. It's not like The Wire. Whenever I tell somebody I lived in uh, in Baltimore, they're like, The Wire? And I'm like, nah, it's like, you know, definitely a lot of drugs in the area. And, you know, it's what I call a fly trap. So a lot of people don't necessarily leave. For me, like, I just, I don't want to like characterize this as like, you have to survive because it wasn't that dire, but there was this like will to want to get out of that area and do something different. And, you know, you got, you get like a taste of like what it's like to see an area that is not plagued with drug issues or, you know, just people who are negative all the time. And you, you start to ask yourself like, well, how do I get there? 
And that sort of becomes like the driver. Personally, I always set just a lot of goals and I'm extremely efficient with time. A lot of my, you know, going through college was gaming that system heavily. I mean, and, and that required, that required uh, having people take a lot of chances on me. So I would make friends with the administrators and, you know, let them know I had all this extensive computer background and, you know, look, I don't need to take the computer 101 class. Can You know, I'll eventually take it if you need me to, but, you know, would you be willing to write me a pass to kind of skip that and take these higher level courses instead, which by the way, count for more credits and they go towards a, an associate's degree. I went to community college for two years and because, you know, I had to, I, I couldn't get any, um, scholarships because I was classified as making too much money. But in order to, like the only reason I made money is because I didn't have, my family couldn't support me to go through that process. So it was a catch-22 situation. So I, I mean, like my, my philosophy overall is that there's so many people that help everyone else along the way. For me, it's, it's just like, there's a level of grit and just determination and it's goals, right? Like it's, I, I like completing something and, you know, moving on to the next thing. In some ways it's bad because, you know, you're never quite satisfied, but it, it, it forces you in a position where you're always like seeking new knowledge or, you know, a new way to change like who you are, or a new way to improve in some form. So I, I think that's, that's kind of what drives my background. And, and you mentioned just being comfortable, not being comfortable in like endurance sports, I'm a huge believer. I, I know that not everybody is, you know, into fitness. And again, that's a product of circumstance too, right? Like my ability to, to, to do long runs or, you know, afford a bike and race and whatever the, the case may be. You know, anybody who, who does long workouts or they, they do something like that for a long time, I think it, it fundamentally rewires you. Because if you go and you know, you're going and biking a hundred miles and it's not that you're just biking to finish, you're racing it. You have to switch your mind into this weird state where you're going to be uncomfortable for the next five hours or so. And you just got to focus. And when you come up with a, like when you run into a problem with life, it's really easy to, to get frustrated. And then you think, well, I sat on a bike for five hours racing a hundred mile ride you know, I can get through whatever like is happening right now. Like someone's disagreeing with me. I can find a path towards that. So I, I feel like years and years of doing those activities has just fundamentally rewired me. It's not to say I'm perfect and far from that. I get frustrated just like anybody else, but uh, it certainly has me looking more inward and figuring out how I can improve my myself. You spoke about continuous improvement. There are threat intelligence leaders out there that are listening to this podcast what do they need to understand or what do they need to implement in order to iteratively improve their threat intelligence program so that it's more impactful for the business, operating at a highly efficient level, and just overall better every time? What are some ways that leaders can do that? I think by and large, and this is in, in some ways the definition of a leader, it's about communication and, and being able to speak to the rest of the business. Security certainly has a seat at the table in any modern business today. So I don't think it's as much of a challenge to get budget or to understand what it means to not have a security program. So I think in that regard, we've won that the industry is in a better spot because security is taking more seriously. For threat intel in particular and leaders in that space, I think it's important for them to really sell 
or properly characterize the value that they bring to the business and the importance in having a program like a threat intel, you know, threat hunting or running the sock that they need to be able to justify why the business is is making that expense. And if they can't communicate that effectively, then the business ultimately looks at it as a cost center. And that's not a position that you want to be in because when times get tough, and especially in, in a situation where, where we're at now, you know, you you run the risk of of getting your resources cut. So I think threat intel leaders could really go a long way in in finding a way to communicate the impact that they're driving in the business. And part of that is it's a challenge because it's almost like an insurance policy. You know, it's easy, I think, for business to say, well, we didn't suffer any breaches. And so we're going to cut some of the security spend because it's it just, it's not needed. And I think that's a, that's obviously a, a false, you know, takeaway. It's the breaches aren't necessarily happening because there is a security program in place. And the other thing I would say to the, to the you know, threat intelligence leaders is to really empathize, which is, you know, just a key part again of leadership is that not everyone's going to understand the technology as well as you do. I largely think back to the early pen testing days when, you know, it was seen as being like edgy and cool to like shame executives for not knowing, you know, things or compromising their accounts and using them as an example. And I I just like, I don't like that. I find it to be unnecessary. All it does is just create more friction between those inside of the organization. So I think it's important that the security team and threat intelligence in particular empathize with their users and that mistakes are going to happen. And it's not, you know, changing people's behavior. And you could try and there's certainly ways to do it, but it's about building resilient systems and building the intelligence into as many processes as possible so that in the event that a, a mistake does happen and somebody accidentally clicks something or a download takes place or even a zero day is employed, like that the business isn't at risk of completely being disseminated by the threat actor. Empathy goes a long way. Brandon, thank you so much for taking the time to hop on the mics with us today. For folks out there that want to learn more about you and about Risk IQ and all the awesome things you guys are doing over there, what are some ways that folks can do that? I'm on Twitter sporadically. So you can follow me at 9B+. And from a Risk IQ perspective, obviously we're on Twitter as well, so at Risk IQ. And then the riskiq.com is our, our webpage if you want to read more information about the business. The one thing I would say for anybody who is running a threat intelligence program or just any analysts who might be listening, I had alluded to this before, but we run threat hunting workshops for free. We're always interested in trying to educate future analysts or even more senior analysts about the different data sets that are available to, to really bring the fight to the bad guys. And so uh, if you want to register, that's community.riskiq.com, where we offer a freemium model. That's just the product that I wrote. Obviously, it's evolved quite considerably since we sold the business. But one of the things that's important to me is has always been retaining a healthy amount of freemium access into that platform so that people could still you know, do their jobs, even if they couldn't afford the product. So uh, I'd say those are the best places to, to look. Keep an eye on our YouTube channel and in our other social media. We're always doing things out in the industry. So, uh, you know, we try to be as inclusive as possible and support bringing, you know, this information to people. So I would say that's where we're to access it. Love that. Great. And yeah, definitely check out all those resources. We're going to drop those in the show notes. 
case you're listening by phone or just not in front of you. So check those out there. And Brandon, yeah, it's been a true pleasure to have you on. Can't wait till we speak again. And we'll see everyone next time. Thanks, Ron. Thanks, Chris.